From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. For the first time, the state's flagship university has someone to oversee its relationship with tribes. Today, Benny Shendo Jr. talks about the role CU Boulder can play in spurring economic development in Indian country and cultural development. Historically, education has always been about assimilating us into the larger society. And the fight has always been about us reclaiming who we are, you know, our language, our lands, and all the things that make us who we are as Native people. Then murals as agents of change. That's been true for decades here in Denver. And it's clear street art today is still a way the Denverites are standing up for what they believe in. And an opportunity for young artists, a workshop where you can hone your storytelling skills. Across time zones and cultures, through wars and natural disasters, NPR kept you informed about the biggest global stories of the year. Recovery efforts continue across Turkey and Syria. Ukraine is waging its biggest military offensive yet. We are co-hosting this program from different locations around the Mideast this week to hear different perspectives on the war. Help us continue to bring the world closer by making your year-end gift today. Support with a year-end gift today at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. For the first time, Colorado's largest university has someone to oversee its relationship with tribes, particularly those with historic ties to the region. Benny Shendo Jr. is CU Boulder's new Associate Vice Chancellor for Native American Affairs. He's a CU graduate and former New Mexico lawmaker. And his arrival comes after Colorado made it easier and cheaper for indigenous students to get a higher education here. And Chancellor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You first came to CU Boulder in the 1980s from Jemez Pueblo in New Mexico, studied business, ran cross country. Uh, Your Pueblo has fewer than 2,000 people. CU's student body is at least 20 times that size. What was the hardest thing about that? And what worked really well? You know, that's a good question. You know, I come from a small community, a remote village in the mountains, and I've always had my heart set on coming to see you when I was a high school kid. And uh, I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I knew I was going to be there at some point in my life. It was quite a journey. Uh, my high school graduating class was, I think, 21 students. Oh, wow. But my journey to see you, I had to stop at Colorado College. So it made the transition to see you a lot easier because... There was kind well, of a middle landing place. Yeah, yeah. You know, Colorado uh, College had the block program. So you took one class for three and a half weeks, and you don't have to worry about, you know, juggling any courses and so forth. So it made that transition a little easier. And then, uh, of course, when I went to CU, it was huge. Some of my earlier classes, I remember there's, you know, a few hundred students in those classes and, and so forth. But I think what made my transition a little easier, I was always interested in running cross-country, so I visited with the coach allow me to practice with the team. And, and so it's a little easier when you have almost like a ready-made family. You know, you have coaches, you have friends that you meet that are on the team and, and stuff like that. So having those relationships established, mm-hmm. feeling like that's already potentially a home mm-hmm. for you, how do you think you might apply that now in leadership mm-hmm. to perhaps indigenous students coming to CU Boulder for the first time? Back then, there was a fairly good sizable Native American population as well. Uh-huh. You know, my sister and then a few others had gone to CU as well. 
you know, it was a sense of community. And I'm hoping that we can establish that for any student, whether they're native, non-native, because I think having that ability to identify with a place and feel like you're a part of it and accept it is good for every student. But I think in particular for native students, you know, who may come from small schools, rural areas, and, you know, really strong family connections, Mm -hmm. and not having that on a campus sometimes could be an issue. And so my hope is that we can reestablish some strong native support programs on campus, both at the undergraduate, graduate, as well as our, our staff and faculty to try to increase the recruitment of those folks so that we have a much larger community. A few years ago, Colorado lawmakers passed a bill to give in-state tuition to members of indigenous tribes with historical ties to Colorado. 48 nations altogether on that list. How strong are CU's relationships with those tribes? It's hard for me to gauge. I think over the years, certainly the universities have had relationships with the the Ute and the Southern Ute tribes, because those are the only two federally recognized tribes that are in Colorado. Right. The rest of them are elsewhere. And so I think, you know, the relationship has always been there. That's so that, that's your strongest? That's Those are the two probably yeah. strongest. And mm-hmm. then I'm hoping that with this new law and my outreach and my connection to Indian country, you know, we, we refer to it as Indian country. I I know a lot of uh, leaders from the other uh, tribes that have interacted over my course of being involved in higher education as well as uh, in political arena and also involvement in the uh, National Congress of American Indians, which is a national organization that, that I, I belong to as well. So those connections are going to be really meaningful and helpful as we try to establish a stronger connection and really a government-to-government relationship. I think the university, you know, at least through the museum and the NACPRO program, which is the uh, Native American Grace uh, Protection Repatriation Act, yes. has had very good ties, you know, to repatriate some of the things that the university has with these tribes and so forth. So I think there's there's always been a relationship. This is a really important point because the relationship between CU and the tribes is not just about students, right? Mm-hmm. It's about artifacts. It's mm-hmm. about what belonged to tribes that universities had in their storehouses, for right. instance. Mm-hmm. There's some complicated history between these governments. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. You know, you know, uh, universities are typically uh, large repositories of these remains. Uh, in fact, I was second lieutenant governor back in 1998, and in 1999 we finally brought home over uh, 2,000 of our uh, ancestral human remains back to Pecos uh, Pueblo, New Mexico, which is east of Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, almost a, a decade-long fight and work with the Harvard University and Peabody back east. And so I'm very familiar with that whole process, and, and it's complicated. It's a tough issue for us to address because the proper burial rights of our people have already been performed. And so how do you do that the second time when you have to reinter you know, that many human remains? And so that's always a difficult situation, for, for I think, for tribes. Thank you for that context, Chancellor. I do want to know what tribes ask of you, ask of CU, when perhaps you talk about the sorts of jobs they need young people to train for, mm-hmm. what their needs are in terms of workforce? No, I think that's going to be an important part because the capacity of tribes, all professions is needed. You know, In fact, I was a tribal administrator for my Pueblo for six years and basically ran the operations you know, for the tribe. And extraordinary need for people in finance, in management, in in business. 
uh, grant writing. I mean, I mean, because there's so many opportunities that are foregone because people just don't have the capacity. Well, we're dealing with climate initiatives right now. We're looking at, you know, transition from uh, fossil fuels to, you know, other new forms of energy. Tribes don't want to be left behind, but the capacity of folks to move on those projects sometimes is not there. Mm. And, of course, you know, you hear about some of the tribes of some of the largest employers in their region. And, you know, with development, diversification, you know, there's a huge need. And, and I think the universities, all universities, not just CU, mm-hmm. I think all have a, a role to play in the development of, of of students to hopefully tackle some of these issues in the future for them. That's interesting because the development of the students might inform the further development, economic development, mm-hmm. of reservations, of tribes, of lands, of nations. Yes, that is. But I think one important perspective we also have to keep in mind is that not just economic development, but development of our communities. You know, the whole resurgence or the the importance of reclaiming your language, mm-hmm. you know, and things that are important as tribal nations. And I think historically education has always been about assimilating us into the larger society. And the struggle and the fight has always been about us reclaiming who we are, mm-hmm. you know, our language, our lands, our, our sacred sites, our songs, and all the things that make us who we are as Native people. You know, we see more and more tribes now looking to reestablish, you know, language immersion schools because this is something that was taken away, you know, by the federal government in a very systematic way. And now we just don't want to develop economically and lose a sense of who we are and our identity as a native. But there be the cultural element to this. Sure. I know, for instance, there's an Arapaho language program at CU, but with 48 nations altogether that mm-hmm. have historical ties to this place, how do you build that in and recognize the differences among all of mm-hmm. these nations at a school like CU Boulder? There are very distinct differences between tribes, but also I think look at these issues, there are certain commonalities that we also have. So how do we look at those, you know, as we develop whether curriculum, it's language, or or things that we want to do at CU or any university, is how do we take that approach and work with tribes to engage them on a government-to-government level because there are sovereign governments. And I think that's people, a lot of times people forget. You know, these are tribes that are, are sovereign nations, you know, within our own states, within our own own country, and to recognize that any engagement with the tribes, we have to do it at that level. Benny Shendo Jr. is our guest. He is the University of Colorado's new Associate Vice Chancellor for Native American Affairs, the first time the school has had this role. So do you imagine visiting tribal elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, to, how, how far back in the pipeline do you want to get? You know, my role as vice chancellor, I, I love the communities that, as a state senator, I've visited many of these communities. Yeah. And so for me, coming from New Mexico, all the tribes in New Mexico have historical connections to Colorado. And they are the ones that are going to be able to benefit at least the students from those tribes with the in-state tuition and so forth. And then, of course, we got tribes in Arizona, Oklahoma. Wyoming, Utah, you know, South Dakota, Montana, uh, North Dakota, and Idaho as well. You have some traveling to do. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited <laughs> about that. You know, I, I visited most of the tribes in Arizona and Mexico, not so much in Oklahoma. I've been to Wind River Reservation in Wyoming, and yeah. I've been to South Dakota. So I've got friends there, 
And uh, I think a lot of folks are excited about what's happening at Colorado and with my uh, What role. are they excited by? Because well, there are presumably other schools, including the University of New Mexico, mm -hmm. who would be all too happy to have these students as well. Well, you know? yeah, you know, I, well, I, I worked at the University of New Mexico. I worked at Stanford assisting dean of students. So I know how to establish these programs. Yep. I know how to develop programs. I know how to raise money for these programs. So I think that's the excitement because we never really had a person at this level at the university to really forge these types of opportunities uh, working with our university, our staff, our various departments, our various schools to really pursue some of these things. So your presence mm -hmm. and this position mm -hmm. is a game changer, you think? Uh, I think so. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's what I'm looking at it. Boulder, Denver, this area has always been a crossroads of Indian country. And it's really fascinating. When I was an undergraduate student, we had some very strong organizations that were national nonprofits, and we still have some here. Native American Rights Fund is right there in Boulder. That's right. The Council of Energy Resource Tribes was headquartered here in Denver. The American Indian Science and Engineering Society still has its headquarters in the Longmont, Boulder area. The First Nations Development Institute, which is a national nonprofit, has its headquarters in Longmont. And so you have a crossroads of these large national nonprofits that have impact across the country. And then you have not only the University of Colorado, but we also you have the Denver schools, you have Colorado State. Isn't the American Indian College Fund and in college, Boulder too? The, yeah. That, did yeah, you mention it, that one? No, I didn't. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm glad you did, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The <laughs> American Indian College Fund is, is in Denver, just yeah. up, up the road here and so forth. So, yeah. So you have these really a presence of these organizations. So you have a lot of, uh, you know, I think the ability to leverage that work to create new opportunities and how do we develop these programs, mm. whether they're on campus and off campus, to, to support students. Would you hope to make CU a Native American-serving non-tribal college? I'll say that's a designation from the mm -hmm. U.S. Department of Education. Right. And I guess, like, either way, do you have a number or percentage in mind for an indigenous student body? That's always a heart, you know, because... You know, you have students that are enrolled in tribes. You have students that have historical connections to tribes but may necessarily be enrolled. You know, you have tribes in the past that have been unrecognized by the federal government, so they're still trying to fight for recognition. So it's always a hard number to do, but I think the important thing is for students that identify themselves as native and so forth, that to me is the most important, that want to be a part of a community to strengthen, to make sure our students succeed to me, and I think whether it's students and faculty and staff, that's really most important for me. Are, uh, when you look at the staff, when you look at the faculty at CU Boulder today, do you see enough indigenous faces? Uh, no, I mean, we got, we got a lot of work to do, I mean, and I think it's Boulder's a, a great place, but at the same time, it's a pretty expensive place, uh, and the cost of living in this area is always uh, going up, and so I think as a university, we have to look at ways to be attractive, you know, both bring folks on, but also, you know, how do we support them? What you're saying there is an obstacle to being on faculty, on staff at CU Boulder, is the inability to live there, mm -hmm. to afford a place to live there. Yeah. Is that in your purview? That's probably outside, you know. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the university is doing stuff to make housing affordable for students. Uh, they, I know there's... 
you know, graduate students, and then also I think there's uh, faculty housing stuff in the past, and so all that stuff is I think being looked at right now. But you'll be adding your voice, I suppose, sure. to the call for that. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah, to mm-hmm. be a part of that discussion and voice. It's going to be critical. Could CU Boulder be more affordable for students, for indigenous students? The in-state tuition no doubt helped. I know it definitely helps, but still a, a, a big ticket, you know, still talking 30000 even at in-state, I think. And so, you know, I, I think a part of our challenge is to raise, hopefully, scholarship dollars to support the students. Some students may come with their own dollars, you know, like the Navajo Nation. They have the uh, Manuelito Scholarship. So if you're a Navajo student and you have a certain level of, uh, I think, GPA or SAT or ACT, you're automatically awarded this Manuelito Scholarship that can follow you wherever you go. And so there's going to be students that, you know, are able to get supported by their respective tribes. But for those that come from families or tribes that don't have the resources, it's going to be a challenge. And I'm hoping that we can be able to package those students, you know, in a way that make it affordable for them. Colorado is also home to Fort Lewis College. Right. Which awards more degrees to Native American students than any other four-year school Mm -hmm. in the country. Is there something to learn from the folks in Durango? Certainly. You know, I think they got good support programs. Uh, they've done very well. Some of our tribal members from our, our tribe have graduated from Fort Lewis. My sister, my youngest sister, graduated from Fort Lewis. And so there's a lot of, I think, we can learn. But also one of the things that I look at at Fort Lewis is the potential for, you know, graduate students. They don't have many of the graduate programs that, that CU has. Chancellor, thank you so much for being with us. Mm, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Benny Shendo, Jr. He's CU Boulder's first-ever Associate Vice Chancellor for Native American Affairs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? Is there actually a spring in Colorado Springs? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the CPR Newsroom. And we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The conviction of two Aurora paramedics in the 2019 death of Elijah McClain means there may be soul-searching among first responders. Peter Chikuniak and Jeremy Cooper were found guilty of the lesser charge of criminally negligent homicide. Chikuniak was also found guilty of assault. Let's hear from an expert in criminal law and procedure. Ian Farrell is a professor at the University of Denver's Sturm College of Law. He spoke with Nathan Heffel. Did anything take you by surprise as you were following this trial or or the other trials uh, surrounding the death of Elijah McLean? I don't know whether I'd say that this took me by surprise, but the thing that I found interesting, because one of the things that struck me uh, from the beginning about this case, when the paramedics were first uh, charged uh, or indicted, was that a lot would turn on how people perceived the relationship between the police and the paramedics. So one of the arguments that the paramedics made was that, look, our understanding is that when we arrive at a scene, 
for as long as the suspect is in handcuffs, the cops are in charge. Mm. They demonstrate a lot of deference to the police. And that's certainly the way it appeared to me uh, from the video footage. That's the sense I got. I think that will be massively important moving forward because if you're, you know, if you're a paramedic uh, working with a police department anywhere in the country now, I think there will be um, policies put in place. There will be very uh, stringent training about um, it being absolutely the paramedic's decision uh, and responsibility and indeed liability in terms of how they're treated at the scene rather than what seemed to be the case here, which is that the police said, we want him to get ketamine and they gave him ketamine without doing any independent evaluation of their own. Because they felt that they weren't, they weren't essentially in charge, if that makes sense. That's, that's certainly the um, position that they uh, put forward I when they're on the stand. Now, uh, it sounds like you're saying this is a precedent-setting decision, that this is going to change how uh, uh, paramedics may do their jobs in the future, as well as how, how officers may do their jobs when they're working in tandem with paramedics. Is, is that correct? And how unusual is this for paramedics to face criminal charges like this? It's extremely unusual. Um, and uh, the fact that they were not just charged but then found guilty and, to be honest, were held by the legal system to be more responsible for Mr. McLean's death than the police officers who initially stopped him, mm-hmm. um, I think will create grave concern for EMTs across the country. And this is really a, a very clear signal that they have to make their own independent judgments. And you may, in fact, in in the future, see tension between officers and paramedics where, you know, maybe the officers are struggling with or believe that they're struggling with a uh, a suspect and would like the paramedics to intervene and the paramedics may resist that. So that'll be crucial to watch going forward. Professor Farrell, watching this trial and the other two, what's your take on how the paramedics were in some cases found more guilty, for lack of a better phrase, than the police who first arrived on the scene? If I was one of the paramedics, I think I'd be very upset that the police officers, like at least some of the police officers, were uh, acquitted when they're the ones who created the whole situation in the first place. Like, the, I, I think I have at least some empathy for the paramedics. Like, a, I, they, they didn't use their own independent judgment at all, which I think is negligence. But the whole situation would not have started if the cops hadn't have illegally stopped Mr. McLean and then fairly quickly escalated it and acted very aggressively and so forth. So the, the difference in the verdicts there, I could certainly understand the paramedics being frustrated by that. That is Professor Ian Farrell of DU's law school speaking with my colleague Nathan Heffel. The two paramedics will be sentenced in March. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with murals as a movement. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. The table is set with turkey, tamales, and treats. 
But before you dive into that holiday meal, there's one thing you gotta do, right? Take a photo. It looks amazing. It looks much different than normal for some reason. Sure, there's probably a filter for that, but we've got some tips on how you can snap better pictures of your beautiful food. Go to Instagram, find us at NewsCPR. Happy holidays. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Murals are more than eye candy. They can give us a sense of community, and each piece has its own story. That is certainly what Kibway Cooper and Emily Williams found as they put together Off the Walls, the street art podcast from CPR and Denverite. Here are their reflections as the year comes to a close. 2023 has been challenging in many ways. Coloradans planned to rally at Civic Center Park in Denver for the Women's March. It's the first time since the pandemic and the first since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. No woman is free until we're all free. Today we heard new testimony in the final trial related to the death of Elijah McClain. A doctor and medical expert testified for most of the day. He told jurors about the declining health of Elijah McClain following his struggle with Aurora police officers, but before he was injected with the powerful sedative ketamine. And as Coloradans wrestled with issues of equity and justice, we were looking at how Denver street artists have used their art to advocate for change. That's been true for decades here in Denver. And it's clear that street art today is still a way the Denverites are standing up for what they believe in. I'm Emily Williams. I'm Kibway Cooper, and we're the hosts of the podcast Off the Walls, a series from Denverite and Colorado Public Radio about the stories and the people behind Denver's street art. When we started to take a deeper look into how and why some of Denver's iconic murals were created, we found a lot of stories of people who use art to push for change and to preserve their community's histories on the walls of Denver. Even as we saw political efforts this year to omit the histories of communities of color, Denver's street artists have continued to preserve their culture and their community through murals. Something pretty exciting happened this year, something that had never been done in Colorado. An artist brought back a mural that had been painted over. David Oslo-Garcia was commissioned by the nonprofit Sisters of Color to paint his first-ever mural in 2007 on their community center building in Sun Valley. He called it Huitzilopochtli, or the Hummingbird Warrior. It was a big challenge for him at the time. It was my very first one. I didn't know what I was doing, actually. I just was on pure instinct and intuition, so I just did it. (laughs) The community loved their new mural, But a few years ago, the unthinkable happened. A dispensary that rented the organization's building covered up David's mural with white paint without permission. The loss of this mural was just the kind of thing activist and archaeologist Lucha Martinez de Luna was trying to prevent. She's the head of the Chicano Murals of Colorado Project, an effort to protect and preserve art. Lucha gets a lot of inspiration from her father, Emmanuel Martinez, an artist who started a community mural movement in Denver 
in the 60s and 70s. Some of his murals are still around, but others were lost, whitewashed, just like David's mural. Nothing else replaced them, just painted white. So the community gets very angry when that happens because there's no conversation whatsoever with the community about, hey, does this work of art mean something to anybody? Which it probably does. Lucha knew of a way to bring David's mural back, to remove the paint covering it without destroying the original painting underneath. With this new method, Huitzilopochtli became the first mural in Colorado brought back this way. Now, with his mural restored, David is hopeful for its future. I'm excited about the new generation that are going to say, oh, this is the mural that was reborn. For Lucha, the success of bringing Huitzilopochtli back was a sign of what's possible for the future. She has a lot of goals for the Chicano Murals of Colorado project in 2024. Do conservation assessments of historic murals throughout the state and to continue restoring murals and to build awareness of the importance of maintaining these murals. Donations are very helpful, especially for our preservation efforts with many of these murals. They require continuous maintenance. Lucha is hoping to make progress this year in protecting murals in Colorado for future generations. That includes listing them on historic registers. So we are currently working on applications to do that with several murals throughout the state. Though Huitzilopochtli was brought back this year, its erasure raises familiar concerns about newcomers and developers whitewashing once culturally rich neighborhoods. In fact, in 2023, Denver was recognized as the second most gentrified city in the United States, according to the National Community Reinvestment Coalition and the U.S. Census Bureau. Artists like Jody Herrera are all too familiar with this issue. I had this opportunity to create a mural in Five Points in what they call as the Rhino Art District, right? Now that it's been gentrified. This inspired Jody to reach out to Pathima Dickerson in order to collaborate on raising awareness for this ongoing problem using a mural. And so I'm sitting there and I'm in Walton Street. And first of all, like immediately I noticed there's this wall and there's all these photos of her and her customers. One thing that, you know, we really can connect on is just having pure love and being pulled by our passion to create justice and to create space for marginalized people. What we've established here at Welton Street Cafe is always more than food. It's about the care. It's about community. Fatima Dickerson and the Dickerson family have served the Five Points community for over 25 years. Welton Street Cafe plays a vital role in the community. It provides safety, a family atmosphere, and amazing food. Unfortunately, Welton Street Cafe was forced to close in March of 2020 after financial difficulties created from the pandemic. Fatima has been running Welton Street Cafe as a mobile eatery, all while preparing to reopen the beloved restaurant. That opening is finally coming into view. 
Welton Street Cafe plans to open at their new location on 28th and Welton Street in the spring of 2024. And Fathima can't wait. As we anticipate our grand opening season in 2024, I can't wait to invite back all the people who have rocked with us, who have supported us, who have believed in us, and be able to feed those families who haven't been fed. This is like the neighborhood dining room, the neighborhood cheers. We will be doing a celebration of life ceremony for my lead waitress we we lost back in March to breast cancer. And so during that celebration, we will be holding space for people who have been directly affected, indirectly affected from breast cancer. And we're going to encourage people to come wearing pink, come bringing your love, come bringing your hugs. The Welton Street Cafe celebration will be the celebration of the year. I mean, in so many ways, I'm just looking forward to it. We also plan on having all kind of media there. I mean, there's been so many people just waiting to see the finished product. And I know that's what it's about. People want to dine with us, and we want them to dine with us, too. The return of Welton Street Cafe is also a story of women persevering despite adversity. Not only is Welton Street Cafe Denver's oldest Black-owned restaurant, it's also a female-led business. It's primarily run by the women of the Dickerson family. 2023 was a big year in Colorado for advocates of gender equity, as people fought for things like equal pay, reproductive rights, and gender-affirming care. But advocacy for women doesn't just happen in the statehouse. Denver's street art scene has its own organization that exists to support and lift up the work of women and non-binary people. It's called Babe Walls, and it was started just a few years ago by some artists who found it was an uphill battle for women to be accepted and get opportunities in Denver's street art scene. Artist Alex Pangburn noticed the gap in opportunities for female artists pretty soon after getting immersed in the city's artist community. You know, it was mostly male-dominated and there weren't a lot of women working. And Alex wasn't alone in feeling that way. The artist Robin Francis, who's known as Grow Love, was noticing the same things and wanted to see change. So I started talking to other female artists and non-binary folks, and they were saying the same thing, that they felt the same way about how things were going. And just started some steam started building up. And I'm like, you know what? We have the capacity to do our own thing. And that's exactly what they did. Grow Love, Alex, and about two dozen other artists came together for the first ever Babe Walls Festival, featuring all female and non-binary artists in the summer of 2020. It really felt like we had achieved something great because we were the artists who were kind of used and then thrown out. And so the fact that we were like, okay, we don't want to be a part of that. We don't want to be treated like that. We're going to do our own thing. And we actually pulled it off. Now, a few years later, Grolove said she feels like there's been a real shift in the street art scene. And she's excited about what's next. Now we're in this really cool period of 
growth. I think a lot of other festivals took into account what was happening and made sure that they're doing their due diligence and folding in the equitable inclusivity things and really standing by that, not just saying it, but actually standing by that and doing the work that it takes to say that that's what you're doing. That was another beautiful thing that came from this. Baywalls took this year off for its festival, but Alex said there are a lot of exciting things in the works for Baywalls in 2024. There's just a lot of really cool stuff coming on the horizon, opportunities that we can you know, continue to create for other women and non-binary artists and beyond. And I'm um, really excited to announce our Women's History Month gallery show that we'll be announcing that partnership and location and the specific dates for that is the beginning of January 2024. Alex also pointed out this is a great time of year to support local artists. I know there are a lot of holiday markets going on. Buying stuff from local artists and, and vendors is always a great way to support not only the individuals within Babewalls, but, you know, the group as a whole. Babewalls is an example of what can happen if you work to create change in your community. But sometimes efforts to create change can be met with resistance. As 2023 draws to a close, Aurora police officers and paramedics stood trial for the killing of Elijah McClain. In 2020, Black Lives Matter organizers held protests as an outcry for justice for Elijah. Artists also showed their support for the movement by painting murals depicting victims of police violence. Artist Adri Norris painted one of those now-lost murals. Adri was commissioned by the city to create a street mural in solidarity for the victims of police brutality in Colorado. When I was asked to do it, uh, I was like, okay, this is an opportunity because like I can I can let this be, you know, the empty gesture that that it could very easily become or I could change it. I can transform it. Adri designed a mural that said in huge letters, Black Lives Matter, remember this time. George Floyd has been murdered, the protests are coming down, um, and DC has had, you know, their their mayor's commission, their Black Lives Matter mural. And it was such a beautiful flex. Like, I loved it. I loved everything about, you know, their choice to do it. And then Denver's like, oh, let's do one. And part of me was like, y'all, really? This show of solidarity came with its own unique challenges. And so, you know, like I, I pushed back a lot. They tried to change my design several times within the very brief time period in which we had to create this thing. The community showed major support for the street mural and it was completed in less than 24 hours. Unfortunately, the mural was only temporary. However, the local organizer of the Black Lives Matter movement, Lindsay Minter, says that it started a very important conversation about the appetite among Denverites for recognition and repair to communities suffering from acts of police brutality. We think of the 60s as a civil rights movement, right? And all of the historical things that happened during those times in the 60s and the 70s, and those leaders that emerged, the the Martin Luther Kings, the um, Malcolm X's, you know, the Huey P. Newtons, like all of the diversity of the people. Fred Hamptons. Yeah, you know, like all of the people that were leaders during that time. I also think of 2020 as a civil rights movement 
that this many years later, we're still fighting for our civil rights. We're fighting for the right to live, which is the biggest right, you know. Um, and to have it documented, um, it made me proud that our city was remembering this time. Mm. The fact that they were removed. Mm. It's like, okay, let's forget this time in mm. Colorado. Let's erase this time in Colorado. We don't ah. want to remember this time in Colorado. It, it, it's painful. Today, most of that street art has been erased, defaced, or has long since faded away. But there's a glimmer of hope that in 2024, artists like Adri will be able to partner with Denver Arts and Venues to create permanent street art that celebrates the Black Lives Matter movement and honors Elijah McClain's memory. The fact that they're willing to do that, that's amazing. There's something that we did was heard and somebody heard us that, you know, Black Lives Matter um, all the time were not temporary, you know, that somebody understands that this movement is permanent, um, that that's a really good feeling. I'm so glad that somebody um, heard us and it, it feels good to be heard. It really does feel really good to be heard. This year, we saw new murals created, a mural brought back to life, and learned about murals that Denver doesn't have, and why. For decades, murals have been a way that Denverites have told underrepresented stories, pushed for change, and lifted up local heroes. And that's only going to continue. Kibway Cooper and Emily Williams, hosts of Off the Walls from CPR and Denverite, catch the entire first season wherever you get podcasts. We have an invitation for young people ages 14 to 24, a storytelling workshop designed to amplify your voice and ignite your creative spark. The important thing, and I truly believe this, is that we recognize that we all have stories to share and that we're all experts at storytelling. That's one of the first things I say. We're all experts. This is one of the facilitators, CPR's own Luis Antonio Perez. We've been consuming stories our entire lives, whether that's seeing them on a big screen at a movie theater or watching it on our TVs or hearing our friends and families tell stories or exchanging stories with them. We have stories all around us. And I really believe as human beings, we're pre-programmed for story. And it's all about tapping into that expertise that we all have inside of us. The workshop will take place over four Saturdays in January and February, and it's free. But the deadline to apply is fast approaching January 1st. So head on over to the website for our hosts, Youth on Record, at youthonrecord.org. Now, what can you expect to get out of this series? Here's David Layden, head of podcasts at Youth on Record. The first outcome is that you're going to have a story that you can tell, right? You have gone through this process of creating a story. You could show up at the moth and perform it. You could even use the story on a college application, right? Like this is your story that you're developing for your own catalog, your own artistic repertoire, if you will. But now the second outcome is that you have now gone through the process with professional storytellers and you can do it again. And it might just make you feel less alone, says co-facilitator Ryan Connerall. I think for me on a personal level, I grew up as one of five kids in a Catholic army household moving around the U.S. 
Um, I think a combination of being part of a big family and also kind of relocating throughout my childhood to different communities and different schools, I started to recognize that I often felt kind of unheard, like fighting for airtime, if you will. <laughs> I think that's actually part of what led me to go to undergraduate school for theater and then find my way into storytelling work more broadly. Again, January 1st is the deadline to apply for the Stories of Change workshop series. It's free. Artists 14 to 24 are welcome at youthonrecord.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 2023 brought Coloradans to tears. And it also brought smiles, laughter, boredom, anger, frustration. I'm CPR Visuals Editor Hart Van Denberg. Our photographers and journalists were there to see it all, and we're grateful to the people who allowed us into their lives to document powerful, pensive, and often playful moments. Revisit 2023 in photos from Colorado and beyond at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Sometimes calamity comes with a silver lining. Here's CPR's John Daly. It's a Saturday in September. My wife Heidi goes hiking with friends in Silverthorne. She's sending me photos. The clouds are amazing, hovering above the mountains. The leaves are changing. They're a glowing golden hue. A little later, our friend Jill, who she's out hiking with, out of the blue sends a completely unrelated video of a car covered in green leaves. I don't think we're going to be able to get that big one off. The video from her neighbor shows the scene in front of her house. People are gathering. You guys were outside. Thanks to one of those windy fall days where gusts are blowing up to 50 miles an hour, big branches and broken twigs layer the street and parked cars. Clearly hit it and bounced off. I run over to our friend's house and see that this massive tree limb has come down on our brown Nissan Leaf an electric car. The roof's caved in about a foot. I can hardly even open the door. At this point, I have no idea what to do, but it seems like there has to be a way to get something positive out of it. I call someone I know, tree expert Patricia Smith. She comes over. It's typical of silver maples around Denver. Smith knows a lot about the city's trees, Many of this variety were planted a century ago. This particular branch, it's one of the main branches of the tree and it's all the way across the street. It has hit two cars. One most definitely looks like it got totaled because of the crushed roof. That's my car. Oh my goodness. <laughs> like a lot of us, they weaken with age and in heavy wind or snow, they come down. These trees love to collapse because they just don't hold the weight when they get a certain age and size. But she and her husband, Peter Cousins, know what to do in these situations. Peter and Patricia have a wood turning business called The Shape of Wood. They salvage wood from neighborhood trees all over town. The tree limb that came down on my poor little leaf was quite big, maybe 30 feet tall and several tons. Peter gets at it with the chainsaw, carefully slicing the tree into pieces. Chips of wood are flying. 
this branch there is holding this whole thing up. So when I cut this branch, it's all going to come down. After a while, Cousins has removed the limb off the car and chopped the tree up into large chunks. So roughly what size piece of wood are you looking for, ideally? At least what size? 12 inch to 18 inch in diameter. A few weeks later, I meet Peter and Patricia at their home. In the back, there's a wood shop. (laughs) Welcome, John. You got the wood pile here. Blocks of wood litter the yard. In the shed, there's saws and a lathe and all kinds of carving tools. So this is red cedar. Uh, It's uncommon. It's as large as this was. And there's a lady over on Monaco Parkway who took a tree down, and a friend told us about it. There's wood from an ash on Montview, wood from Park Hill, Hilltop, Berthoud, and part of the remains of a tree from a family who lost their home in the Marshall Fire. And they found out about how we salvage trees and wanted Peter to make a bowl out of that whatever surviving pieces of the sugar maple there were. Yeah, it was from the the burn side when Marshall Fire blew through. It burned the tree. I mean, it baked it, so it cracked badly. Patricia says a common vein is that people form a deep, lasting bond with their trees. They take down their beloved tree in in a front yard, and, and they consider it kind of part of their family. It's their family tree, bad pun, but... That was a good pun. That was a good pun. Yeah. <laughs> a family tree. Over the course of a couple of visits, Peter and Patricia show me how it's done. A mound of wood is cut down to the size it can fit on a lathe. Then Peter uses metal tools, gouges, and scrapers with names like skew chisel. Occasionally, there is blood. Dislocated some some fingers, cut my hand, sliced my fingers on the table saw. Yeah, we've, we've got the route down to Rose Medical Center down. But barring ER visits, Peter, behind a safety mask... This thing here holds the uh, gouge the at a specific angle. ...carves the wood down through repeated cuts with vast volumes of sawdust streaming into a bowl shape. He applies wax. It's put in a kiln to dry out the moisture. And then, with some sanding and polishing, the finished product, ready for show and sale, at craft fairs and art festivals. Honey locusts, maple, cedar, ash. Peter and Patricia show off a table of wooden objects, um, a baseball bat, a baby's rattle, and many bowls, each its own color. This is from your tree, from your maple tree. Beautiful. Really, it's it's a gorgeous piece of wood. This one has a golden yellow shade with rings of darker brown lines. Some have waves and variations. All have some personal connection. It really seems like a a very natural and spiritual thing for us to understand that a tree does have a presence more than just being a piece of wood. And like so many pieces of human carved wood, there's a story. This one you could call how a tree destroyed a leaf and became a bowl. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Oh, and the car was totaled. Ah, well, you can see pictures of that huge tree on top of John's car and the woodworking that became of it at CPR.org. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.